this morning we come to letter S in the life of Christ, A through Z, looking at the 26 major events in the life of Christ. And if you will, turn with me to John chapter 10, verse 22. And let's read our passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. We'll read verses 22 through 33. So John, the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jewish leaders then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these also testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. And I give everlasting life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders picked up stones again, to stone him. Jesus answered or responded to them and said, I've showed you many good deeds from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jewish leaders answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Uh, wow. Now, let's advance, David. This is the Sunday, the Sunday immediately after Thanksgiving 2018. So before we pray for teachability and our troops, let's uh, warm up our capacity for abstract thought. Because uh, some of you may have eaten too much. Uh, so it may be easy to take a nap, especially easy to take a nap this morning. So these are seven signs you may have eaten too much Thanksgiving dinner. Number four, before anyone else can get to the table, you ate the whole turkey, a bowl of gravy, a platter of ham, and half the tablecloth. So that's just, it's, it's a possible sign. I didn't say this was funny necessarily. I just said we're trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Number three, aren't you glad we don't have ten? Uh, after the meal, it took your family almost two hours to pry you out of your chair. That's a bad sign. Number two, we're going to finish these. Two hours after the meal, your tummy slowly expanded into twice the size of Plymouth Rock. That was my favorite one. And uh, the last one, hold your applause. Uh, the next day, when you stepped on your bathroom scale, it slowly compressed into a molten ball of hot plastic. Now, you know what? There's actually a mistake on that. Uh, the, the title isn't supposed to be uh, Four Signs You May Have Eaten Too Much Thanksgiving Dinner. It's actually supposed to be uh, Four Signs Ron Miller Ate Too Much Thanksgiving Dinner. So that's probably why you didn't laugh, okay? Next slide. Um, let's pray for teachability to God's word. Uh, this is not just information. It's transforming truth. But you have to process it with your head and your will, your heart, your mind, and your will. And I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can sure illumine the clay teacher up here to so you can understand God's word, believe it, and use it as the basis for your choices, your convictions, your priorities, how you treat your wife, uh, how you treat your pastor, uh, how you think about everything. So we're going to pray that we'll be teachable to God's word as the Spirit who inspired this text will illuminate and we're also going to pray for our troops peace officers and firefighters okay so david stribling if you would uh, lead us in prayer in that direction please you know david stribling is one of those guys that makes america great uh, makes tbf great this solid believer brother thank you my man i appreciate you uh yeah we are going to look at letter s but the last couple of weeks we've been seeing an emphasis on the deity of christ when we say we believe in the deity of christ 
that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ, we're saying that Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, is fully God. All of the attributes and characteristics God the Father has and God the Holy Spirit has, Jesus Christ has. He's the God-man Savior. He took on humanity, but he did not give up his deity. He's the unique person of the universe, the only one that could pay our way into heaven as our substitute. We've seen an emphasis on those kind of concepts a couple weeks ago in letter Q, quizzical questions in the aftermath of the Jewish religious bureaucracy saying Jesus was not the Messiah, wasn't the Christ. He was a satanically possessed false prophet. That's their official position. Letter O, Jesus takes the 12 out of Jewish territory, out of their routine, they go to Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and he basically says, what's the Gallup poll saying about me now? The leaders have said horrible things about me, and the Gallup poll is still saying pleasant things, right, Doug? I mean, uh, very uh, affirming things, but they're not saying the right thing. But Peter does say the right thing. Speaking for 11 of the 12 of them, Jesus says, okay, that's what the Gallup poll, that's what people are saying about me. What do you say about about me now. And that was, that was plural. What do you all say about me now? All y'all. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Savior promised in the Old Testament. You're the exalted, glorified God in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the Son of Man and the Son of God, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. It's a home run. So we see the righteousness, the deity of Christ declared with those questions. And one more, David, we went from... Uh, uh, Q to R, and last week we looked at the transfiguration where Jesus unveiled his glory to Peter, James, and John. The Old Testament law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah represented. It's all about Jesus, the voice of God the Father. After Peter says, I'll build three buildings for you guys here, uh, the voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah and Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon and your favorite uh, media preacher and James and Brad are just water boys. We're just helpers. Listen to him. He's the incarnation of God. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. And now today in letter S in John 10, we're going to see Jesus directly affirming his deity. I and the Father are not one and the same person, but one and the same thing. All that God the Father is and his attributes and his essence, I am. Uh, and uh, we're going to see that even though many people today misunderstand that statement, the original listeners, the enemies of Jesus understood it because they say, you've just blasphemed because you being a man make yourself out to be God. He's claiming to be God in human form, and they object to that. They don't believe. That blows their categories. So that's what we're going to look at today. But let's look at the passage and break it down like this. We're going to see first the setting, and this is an important setting. Uh, this reference to this Feast of the Dedication is really an important reference. We want to unpack that. Then we'll see the sarcastic question. Uh, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Don't keep us in suspense. It's very uh, insulting for them to say to Jesus after two and almost three years of ministry. He's been more than clear. He's been so clear they've had to explain it away, and now they're acting like they're offended, and it's his fault. Have you ever had people get offended when you've done exactly the right thing, nothing wrong? That's a lot of fun. And you know, you gotta let the emotional pain go away and hope they grow up. But it doesn't always happen. It happens here. And it's sad to see when it's the Son of God who's being scandalized. And then we're going to see the setting straight. The Lord's just going to go right down the middle and explain what the deal is and who he is. And then we're going to see the scandal. They're going to be scandalized that he actually believes he's God. So let's look at the setting first. Look at verse 22 and 23. At that time, 
The Feast of the Dedication, you probably know it better as Hanukkah. It's also called the Feast of Lights. Took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Uh, Hanukkah isn't Jewish Christian Christmas. It happens about the same time as Christmas. It's actually an eight-day long feast that happens in December, but it uh, is uh, not the uh, analogous to Christmas in any way, but it just meets at the same time or, or, or takes place at the same time of the year. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Yeah, this would have been December of 32 AD, and according to Harold Honer's Cambridge PhD dissertation, the crucifixion takes place on April 3rd of the next year. So we're you know less than four months away from the crucifixion. Jesus knows this. The disciples don't know it's about to happen, but he's warned them that's going to happen. And they don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem. So they're upset that he's even brought them to this feast, which wasn't one of the three Old Testament required feasts. In fact, this is not an Old Testament feast. Hanukkah is a Jewish military patriotic holiday that commemorates some events that took place in roughly 165 B.C., after the last Old Testament book, before John the Baptist, during that intertestamental period, in which uh, a great Jewish George Washington by the name of Judas Maccabee overthrew Syrian invaders who had desecrated the temple and offered up a pig on the brazen altar, which is like the worst thing you could do. And uh, it's interesting that after that revolt, the Maccabean revolt, the Jewish patriots rose up and threw the Syrians out from about 165 B.C. until 63 B.C., 100 years, the Jews had autonomy. They had an independent country, but then a major world empire based in Rome. This is not a trick question. What major ancient world empire based in Rome uh, occupied Israel in about 63 B.C. for the next 100 years, a couple hundred years? Yeah, the Roman Empire. So Judas Maccabee was seen as a national hero to the day of Jesus, and even to this day in many Jewish folks' minds. It's a patriotic holiday. It's uh, a Jewish holiday. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not required, but Jesus is a good patriotic Jewish man, wants to be there for this. And uh, we're walking in the temple area in the portico or the porch of Solomon. David, let's look at some of the graphics there. Uh, yeah, go back to the, the first one there. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah means uh, to praise or to dedicate, and uh, it's referring to the rededication of the temple after the Syrians were kicked out and the temple was cleansed. Uh, go to the next one. They have comic books today uh, for Jewish kids uh, that uh, rather than Superman or Batman, they've got Judas Maccabee, you know. Uh, so it's a, it's a holiday still enjoyed today uh, by the Jews. Next slide. Uh, uh, there's a map, and as you know, Jesus bases his ministry in Galilee, but he comes to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the three required feasts, uh, Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. But sounds like he comes maybe four times a year. At least this year he's come, come four times. Uh, let's uh, expand the bottom part of that map up so you'll see it. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, is right there. Bethlehem is due south, six miles downhill all the way. There's Jericho. So we're in the region of Judea where the religious leaders uh, really control things with a, with an iron hand. And they're on record as saying Jesus is a demon-possessed, satanically-possessed false prophet. And under the Old Testament law, what was the legal response to satanically possessed false prophets. That's a capital crime. So they're saying he's a capital felon, and uh, they've already got motive, and they've got means. They're just looking for opportunity. And it's really kind of a Class B miracle he didn't get killed here in December. Of course, God's not, the Father's plan is not going to let that happen. But it's very dangerous, uh, and, and that's to use... Uh, 
the Cameron communication textbook, they had a very chilly communication climate uh, in this environment, is what you would say. But it says, at this time, or at that time, let's look at the broader context. Go back to chapter 8. Back a few months before, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, uh, and he said some amazing things, starting with chapter 8, verse 12. In public, despite the threat against his life, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Drop down to verse 21. Then he said to the religious leaders who are publicly trying to gin up support for their position that he's a dangerous, horrible, evil person who needs to be killed, he said to them again, I'm going to go away, and you'll seek me, and and you will die in your sin, because where I'm going you cannot come. So the Jewish leaders were saying, surely he's not going to kill himself, is he? Since he says, where I'm going you cannot come. And he was continued to talk to them. He said, you are from below. He's looking at the most righteous, religiously uh, scrupulous people in Judaism. Uh, You're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you're going to die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, I am the Christ, I am the Savior, the one who's going to take care of the sin problem as the Lamb of God, you will die in your sins. Drop down to verse 30. Now, in this larger crowd dominated by skeptics and enemies, we got a handful that hear Jesus saying he's the light of the world, and they actually believe, even in the most antagonistic environments, North Korea, parts of China, Myanmar, Sudan, people come to faith. God initiates salvation. God knows who his people are. They're all going to get it. As he spoke these things, many, a good many, not two or three, but eight or ten or fifteen out of hundreds and hundreds of people here are watching this thing. Many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to that subset of the much larger larger crowd who had believed, if you continue in my word, then you are really going to be capital D disciples of mine, disciples in the fullest sense, and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You hear a lot of people saying that expression, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. I think it's actually chiseled into the UN building somewhere. I think I remember reading that. But nobody seems to remember who said it. Who says it, Natalie? Jesus says it to believers living in an antagonistic culture. They're surrounded by unbelievers that want to kill Jesus. He's saying, abide in my word. What does he tell Peter? Uh, feed, you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's all about the word of God so we can glorify the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, drop down to verse 39. They answered and said, Abraham's our father. And since we're physically related to Abraham and we're good religious Jews, we're going to heaven. We don't need to save us. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. Now, who's his father? Who their father? Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. Oh, my goodness. That might hurt their feelings. You can't say that. Uh, Jesus didn't seem to worry about stuff like that. Look at 8, chapter 8, verse 48. The Jewish leaders answered and said, Do we not say rightly you have a, you are a Samaritan, you're worthless, and you have a demon, you're satanically possessed? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. They don't like him because they really don't like God. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, takes my word, he'll never see death. That really blows their categories. Keep reading. Uh, the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. We've been saying it. It actually looks like it might be true in their mind. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll not taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, 2,000 years before this. 
The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, said, If I glorify myself selfishly, self-centeredly for my personal agenda, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you are far from Him. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say I do not know Him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoice to see my day through the eyes of faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God's promises about the coming Messiah, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul uses that as the poster boy for justification by faith. That's what the Lord's talking about there. And the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old yet. And Luke told us he's about 33 years, uh, three years before when the ministry first started. So he's somewhere between 30 and 50, probably 35-ish. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, what? I was, I might be, I could be, I am. That's the form of Yahweh, the Lord in the Old Testament. And they understand that because verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to, to throw at him because Jesus had just claimed to be God and pre-existent, pre-existing before Abraham. So in chapter 10, we're going to see they pick up stones again to stone him. The first time was in John 8 right there. Look at John 9. Jesus heals a man who was born blind as a special sign to the religious leaders of Judaism, because you don't have anything like that in the Old Testament. And then we pick up from that point, look at chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind, the guy who was born blind that Jesus just healed in front of the temple. Now, it was on a Sabbath day uh, when Jesus made the guy uh, whole, uh, made the clay and opened his eyes. So, uh uh-oh, we're going to have a a process uh, violation here. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight, the heal, the healing. They're asking this blind guy, now what happened? And he said, he applied clay to my eyes, I washed and I saw. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep our hyper-picky interpretation of the Sabbath pickier than God's. Beware of letting people uh, have stricter convictions in Scripture and then using that as litmus test for anybody, especially anybody but them, right? you got the right to do that, but that can't be an ultimate litmus test. Um, so, hey, he's breaking the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can someone who's a sinner perform such signs? That's an unheard of sign. Nobody born blind was healed in the Old Testament. So they said to the blind man again, the formerly blind man, that's a proleptic reference, right? Um what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the guy says, I think he's a prophet, you know, something like that. Now, it gets almost funny, if that's possible, as you keep going. The Jews then did not believe it of him. They just don't believe he was healed, uh, that he had been blind, born blind, and received sight, until they called the parents of the man. And they questioned them, saying, is this your son, this guy over here? who uh, you say was born blind, how does he now see? And his, the parents answered and said, uh, we know this is our son. Yeah, that's definitely him. Uh, and they was born blind. We were there. At least mom was there, right? Right, Patsy? You were there when James was born, right? Uh, but now, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Real gutsy uh, position there by them. Uh, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. And watch this. This is important. For the Jewish leaders had already agreed. They've already decided Jesus can't be the Messiah. They won't have him. If anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, 
He's going to, that person will be put out of the, out of the synagogue. He'll be, he or she will be, uh, excommunicated. Uh, so that's important. It's, we talked a couple weeks ago about the importance of that title, Dr. Deeg, of Christ. It's not his last name. It means he's the one the Old Testament promised to send, uh, God would send to take care of the sin problem. Now look at chapter 10. We're just developing the background for what we're going to read in the rest of chapter 10. Very important that you recognize this and follow this. Look at verse 7. So Jesus said to them, and again, we're in Jerusalem, he's teaching, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me, all these false teachers, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will process and live a Christian life that are pleasing to me. He'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. As another verse people quote a lot, but nobody seems to know where it is. You know, Sometimes they don't even know who said it. Now you know. It's 1010. Easy to remember. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Christ is the one Isaiah 53 said would die for our sins. Drop down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father intimately, uniquely, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, not just Jewish sheep, but Gentile sheep. Dustin's one of those sheep. Uh, Ron Miller's one of those sheep, which are not of this fold, not of the Jewish uh, line. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so I may take it up again. No one is taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. And look at verse 19. A division occurred again because among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he is a demon. That's what the leaders are telling us. Why you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of somebody who's demon-possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, and actually there is a jump of time of a couple of months there, but in that setting, in that communication climate, the Feast of the Dedication took place. Jesus doesn't have to be there, but he makes it a point to be there because it's important to him. And he's walking through the portico of the Ports of Solomon. Uh, next graphic there, David. Yeah, let's look at this. This is a, a graphic, a little fuzzy, sorry about that, of the temple complex. That's the building uh, right there. Only priests could go in the building. When we say Jesus and the guys are in the temple, we mean somewhere within these walls here, right? When we go to Israel and see the western wall, we're going to see part of that right there. That's what the western wall is. Southern steps, etc. But you notice these colonnaded areas there? That's called Solomon's Porch. Uh, next uh, graphic, David. Yeah, this is a, a model. And again, you see these colonnaded areas, covered porch-like areas where people, especially when it was colder in the winter, you could talk and interact. Next graphic, uh, right in there, right? Next one. Yeah, okay. Everybody seeing what Thomas' porch isn't uh, the back porch of his castle or his palace. There's another uh, kind of a picture of that or a graphic of that. Okay, next one. Yeah, okay. So let's move from the setting to the sarcastic question. If you read this real quick, you might not notice how horrible, how insulting this question is, okay? But the Jewish leaders gathered around him in public in December. A few months later, they're going to actually have the Romans crucify him. And we're saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Why can't you be clear about what your mission is, what you're trying to do? The reason they've decided he's satanically possessed is because he's been so clear. And they won't tolerate him. They won't accept him. They don't want him, right? But this is very insulting, very demeaning. It implies it's all his fault, that he's been unclear, he's been un- he's been fuzzy. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, 
Now, what did 9.22 say? Hold your place. Go back to 9.22. You know, you're the debriefing the parents of the guy who had been born blind after the healing, and his parents were afraid to say anything positive about Jesus because they knew the Jewish leaders had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, you kick him out of Judaism, right? That was the idea. So th- go back to chapter 10. This is a very misleading question. They're kind of acting like, we have no idea who you think you are. you know. But if you told us you were the Christ, maybe we'd believe it. You know, they've already rejected him. They know who he's claiming to be, and they've totally they vilified him. You know, They've criminalized him. Uh, so very, very insulting. Uh, not very nice. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at the importance of the term Christ. I've got, you know, that third page in the handout goes over that. I won't read the whole thing again, but let me emphasize this is not Jesus' last name. It's a term for Savior, Messiah, the one who will take care of the sin problem and ultimately rule the world. It's a title exclusively for Jesus only. It applies to no one else. Jesus claims to be the Christ. He confirms he's the Christ. In Luke 24, the day of the resurrection, remember, he walks his disgruntled or disappointed followers, some of them. Uh, they've heard about the crucifixion. They don't know about the resurrection yet. And he goes to the Old Testament and says, isn't it necessary, based on the Old Testament, for the Christ to suffer and then enter into glory? And they get, the light goes off. They go, yeah, yeah, lamb, lion, cross, crown. Okay, we get it. Very important. And the truth that Jesus is the Christ is the essential content of saving faith. I mean, the gospel call is basically an exhortation for people to trust that Jesus is their Christ, is the Savior, their Savior. This is seen in 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is seen in the purpose statement of the Gospel of John 20, verse 30 and 31. Many other things Jesus also did that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then you look at the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts 5, 42, every day in the temple from house to house, the 12 apostles are preaching Jesus as the Christ. Acts 9, 22, Saul, newly born again in Damascus, is preaching that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 17, second missionary journey, this Jesus who I'm telling you about is the Christ. Acts 18, Paul devoted himself completely to the word in Ephesus, testifying to the Jews Jesus was the Christ. And Apollos, another Bible teacher in the New Testament, refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating Jesus is the Christ. So you plug all that in to verse 24, the sarcastic question, hey, don't keep us in suspense. Tell us whether you think you're the Christ or not. Tell us whether you think you are the Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb of God, Lion of God, and we don't know. We don't know if you think you are or not, which is ridiculous on its face. So look at the setting straight. Jesus just goes right through the middle of the line here. Jesus answered them and said, I told you. I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you, and you don't believe. You're rejecting it. You've you've rejected it. The works, the miracles I do, like healing a man born blind, these testify of me, and you explain it away. You kidding? I haven't done enough. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them relationally. They follow me. I give everlasting life to them, and they will never perish. Now, in the Greek text, you've got a double negative there, ume. Now, in English, a double negative is bad. I mean, uh, I, I might say, I would never think of this, but I, let's, let's say I woke up this morning and I thought, um, 
uh, I'm not going to church. You know, my wife said, why not? She said, well, uh, I said, uh, I said, I'm not going to church today. She said, why? I said, well, you know what? The sermons do absolutely nothing for me. And she said, Brad, you're the pastor. You got to go to church. But anyway, uh, I wouldn't say that. But if I woke up and said, I'm not going to church. And then after I thought about it, I said, I'm not, not going to church, Robbie. That's the way the country folks sometimes talk, right? I'm not, not going to church or I'm not, not going to go to the Walmart. That's the, that's my cross to bear every week, you know? Uh, no, I'm not going. going. Well, I'm not not going. What does that mean? I'm not not going means I'm going, but that's redundant. It's bad English. Your English teacher won't like that. But in Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, a double negative is is strong affirmation or strong negation, I should say. It's emphasizing there is no way possible. And Jesus says, "I give eternal life to them, and they will ume. They will not never." perish. They'll never ever under any circumstances perish. And they're not going to snatch them out of my hand. And those that's where they are. They are, according to him, relationally I'll use this one. That's that's Dustin. Okay. Now Dustin has more muscles than that, but that's Dustin. Okay. And Jesus is saying, as a believer in me, Dustin's not going to perish because Dustin's in my hand. Can it get any better than that? You might think not, but it actually does. Look at the next verse. My father who has given them to me. He's the author of the plan, the father. Jesus is the active agent in the plan. Um, my father's given to them is greater than all who would want to take them out of Jesus' hand. And no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So Tommy, that's you, buddy. I call that a double-fisted security. Now he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. He's not trying to be comprehensive. But in Ephesians, we're told we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So I always think that real believers are in Jesus' hand, so they can't perish. They're in the Father's hand on top of that, so a certain can't perish. And because of being sealed in the Holy Spirit, that's spiritual super glue. The Holy Spirit spiritually super glues that whole thing. Salvation isn't probation. It's salvation. Uh, the one who believes has everlasting life. Not everlasting life until you sin again or you miss prayer meeting. Now, if it's up to me, I would have said you got to come to prayer meeting and go to heaven. But you don't have to, okay? Uh, but you make points with the pastor if you do. But, I mean, this is as strong as it gets about the dynamics of salvation being the work of God, not the work of man. God initiates it. We receive it. We do nothing meritorious to get it, to keep it, to earn it, to deserve it. We can't unearn it because we didn't deserve it. That blows most people's categories, but that's Jesus' categories. And then he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, uh, go ahead and re- reveal all that stuff up there, David. Uh, and when we go from my computer to that computer with certain fonts, it doesn't display very well. So I go to the next one. Let's give you the short version on this. That statement is variously interpreted by people, but the Greek text makes it very clear. Jesus is not saying, I and the Father are one and the same person. The syntax doesn't allow that. What it means is, I and the Father are one and the same in attributes, in essence, in characteristics. Everything God the Father is in his character, his attributes, his essence, I am uh, that second person of the Trinity. Next slide. The deity of Christ and the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, go hand in hand. Every group that denies the deity of Christ will deny the Trinity too. Every group that denies the Trinity will deny the deity of Christ. And you look at so-called Christian cults, theological cults, the two biggest ones are the Mormon Church and Jehovah's Witnesses. They have many differences between them, but they all deny that I and the Father are one in attributes and character and essence. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, So this is not just something that theologians debate. This is the very core of the gospel because you must have a God-man-savior 
to let to do the work necessary to get Steve from Oklahoma to heaven. You know, in order for him to die, he's got to be fully human. In order for the uh, benefits of his atoning work to be everlasting, he's got to be God. And you can't have one without the other. Now that's very threatening to world religions because they have human leaders or leaders who are greatly enlightened telling you how you can make a ladder to climb up to God. Christianity says you can't make a ladder to climb up to God. God came down for us, lived the perfect life for us, died and paid our sin debt for us, came back alive again supernaturally after being room temperature for three days, literally bodily supernaturally, and everyone who trusts in him for salvation, who believes he's their Christ, is given the gift of everlasting life. And he can say that and do that because he's God in the flesh. Next slide. That's my schematic, you know. But this is a fancier one. Uh, let's just go back to the first one. How many of you prefer that one over this one? Next one. Okay. Go back to the first one. I did that all by myself. Okay. Next one. Some graphic designer somewhere, probably in India, did that one. Okay. But the idea is there's one God in three persons. The Father is fully God in his character, his attributes, his essence. But the Father is not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God in his attributes. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, triune. Uh, 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 I won't go through the list, but I could if I force myself to. Let's, let's do it. He's true. When we say he's true, we don't mean he's, tr- he's he tells the truth. We mean he's real. He's the source of all reality. God, the triune God is the source of all reality. Okay? Triune, one God, three persons. Transcendent, outside of time and space. But you can't put that in a test tube. Exactly. That's the limit you got. Omniscient, what does that mean? Knows everything. Omnipotent, no finite limit on his power. Omnipresent, everywhere present in time, space, matter, and energy. We already know he's outside of it. He's also everywhere in it all the time. He's just and righteous. Just, he's inherently morally fair. He's inherently morally righteous. That's holiness. Justice and righteousness is holiness. Sovereign. God's got a plan. Didn't consult me about the plan. Isn't going to consult me about his plan. I don't need to be his consultant. I need to be his servant. Right? His love seeks the highest good of his creatures, consistent with his character. Immutable, never changes in his character. His character doesn't change. Veracity, everything he does and says is true. Everything you can find in science that's legit is true. Everything you can find in scripture that's legit, that's contextual, is true. They'll all fit together if you understand them both in context and correlate them together. He doesn't, the ancient Greeks would pick up a rock with a fish in it, and their gods would lie to him, and they say, oh, I know fish don't aren't in rocks, throw that away. That's Zeus trying to trick us again. You know, It was Christian, Western thought that said, let's dig stuff up and figure out what it is, because God's not going to lie to us. And we give, we're given everlasting life. God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. I am God. When Jesus says, I am the Father of one, he's saying, I'm all that just as much as the Father is. Next slide. Yeah, and, you know, the bottom line is, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to have a God-man Savior, and Jesus is the only one who qualifies, right? Uh, he is the mediator between God and man. And remember now, Real quick, look at uh, Philippians 3. The Jewish leaders that have rejected Jesus are insulting him and are planning to lynch him with some Roman help and crucify him. They're dedicated to the proposition they can earn their own salvation because they're physically connected to Abraham, and if they're good enough Jews, they'll be able to earn it themselves. In Philippians 3, Paul, who thought like that before he was born again, says, Philippians 3, middle of verse 8, I count all that stuff I stacked up to try to earn my way to heaven to be rubbish. 
in order that I could have Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Mosaic law by being a good Jew, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the God-man who died to pay my sin debt, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, So that's the audience Jesus is speaking to. He offers himself as the solution. They don't want it. And then go back to the next slide. I think we're almost back to the outline. Yeah, I see uh, different computers mess up that stuff. Okay. Uh, that's good. Let's stay there. Uh, go back to the passage in John. So, hey, if the Christ tell us plainly, uh, well, you haven't told us enough. And Jesus says, I've told you. You don't believe. You're the problem, not me. I give eternal life, everlasting life to those who believe in me. They're in my hand. They're also in the Father's hand. I and the Father are exactly the same thing in our character. And so now we come to the bottom line, the scandal. The Jews, the Jewish leaders picked up stones again to stone him. Back in chapter 8, David Demerson, remember? We said when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to stone, throw at him, because they think he's blaspheming. That's chapter 8, chapter 10, same thing. Every time the Jewish leaders try to stone Jesus, he's just claimed to be God again. Okay, Ethan, write it down. Jesus does claim to be God. Some people will tell you he never did claim to be God. But say, why did the Jewish leaders try to stone him multiple times? Because he just claimed to be God again. Very important to notice that. So they pick up stones to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus said, I showed you many good works from the Father, works that only the Messiah, the Christ, would do, for which them are stoning me. And they say, and watch this, you can tell the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he meant by verse 30. Don't let anybody kid you that verse 30 means anything different than Jesus claiming to be God uh, as far as his character and his essence. The Jewish leaders said, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, look it up in Leviticus 24, 16, uh, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God, which is exactly what he's saying, exactly who he is, and that's why they end up crucifying him. But what is seen as scandalous in the human mind is a perfect reflection of the grace, mercy, and goodness of God. We've got a God who can make crosses the greatest thing uh, possible. I mean, in one sense, for the for the creature, creatures to crucify the, the creator is the worst blasphemy, and yet God uses that and redeems that suffering so that all who believe receive eternal life. So take this to heart. And yeah, uh, go back to the liar lunatic uh, slide there. Yeah, you know, uh, as far as our culture has gone morally and theologically in the last 50 years, it's hard to find any of the elites who will say Jesus was a bad person. Most of them are going to say Jesus was a nice, well-meaning religious teacher who was kind of a social reformer, kind of a community organizer for a century, you know, uh, before Alinsky told you what, how to really do it kind of thing, right? Uh, a really good guy, but it's misunderstood. He never thought he was God. He never thought he was anything special, right? Well, C.S. Lewis said, you know what? That's the one option you can't take, logically speaking, because he said and did stuff that won't allow you to say he's a nice teacher. How can he say, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe I'm the Christ, if he's a nice, gentle, sweet, non-offensive religious teacher. There are a lot of them out there, but Jesus doesn't qualify. The only three logical conclusions, and you're going to die grasping the one of these conclusions. Jesus was a liar. Let's say that he was corrupt. He's he's not the Christ, but he pretends to be. You could say that about him. That's logically possible based on the data. You could say he's a lunatic or he's crazy. He's corrupt. He's crazy. Or you got to say, if you really look with the eyes of faith, he's the Lord.
Word. He's God, right? He's the uh, the Christ. Uh, he's not a nice teacher based on what he does and what he claims to be. So don't allow that fourth illegitimate option to be thrown out there. Anytime somebody throws that at you, say, that's the one thing he can't be. He can't be just a nice, well-meaning religious teacher based on what he did, what he said, and how the Jews react to him. Uh, you know, we're not going to... Uh, Sing just as I am 17 times, but we will invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, based on your sin and your need, the Holy Spirit actually convicts you of sin, you got it, righteousness, you need it, judgment, it's coming, and then opens your eyes to see that on the cross, Jesus took your judgment for you. He died in our place. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then from the depth of your heart, mind and will, not just mental ascent, I believe somebody named Jesus died and came up back alive again. Act of the will, uh, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God to those who believe on his name. Uh, I like the thief on the cross, I like the leper. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? I am willing, you're clean. You know, That's not just, I think he might be able to help me, I can't fix myself. I want you to. Will you help me? Will you save me? Will you fix me? That's saving faith. Little kids can do that. You don't have to be a theologian to get saved. Okay. Now, theologians have spent decades talking about and slicing the steak real thin and looking at all the details, and you can do that. Um, and a lot, a lot of us enjoy doing that. But the essence is thief on the cross, who wasn't just a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. Who did the Romans crucify? Dangerous, murderous rebels. And they would force them to carry their cross from the execution, from the place of condemnation to execution, to, to show, show the Romans who are occupying, this is what happens to people who get in our way. You rebel against us, we will find you, we will arrest you, we will condemn you, we will make you walk to the place of torture, and you'll be tortured to death, right? So uh, the thief on the cross there wasn't a thief. He was a murderous terrorist. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you know, I wish you'd talked to me last week. You know, it takes a while to explain this to people. You know, He says, today you'll be with me in heaven, in paradise, right? So, you know, a little child can do it. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Now, we live in a culture that denies sin. That's a problem. Because only sinners need a Savior, right? But deep down, look in the mirror. You break your own standards, much less God's at your worst. We all do that. So, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need righteousness. I can't manufacture myself, but I believe Jesus died for my sin debt, and I trust him alone. You're not believing he gives you a chance to earn it. You're trusting him to forgive you because he paid for your sins in your place. That's saving faith, and that's our invitation to you. Uh, for us as believers, a lot of people are going to tell us that Jesus was a well-meaning person, but he never claimed to be God. And he claims to be God in almost every page of the Bible, if you really look at it closely, much less the Gospels. But right here in John 10, you have a very definitive affirmation. I and the Father are one and the same thing. I'm everything the Father is. And the opponents say, hey, that's blasphemy. You're a man. You claim to be God. Bingo. That's what he said. That's what he meant. That's who he is. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray that these truths might not just be theological information or trivia, but uh, they might burn deeply into our souls and create a battleship of the soul that will give us convictions that will withstand questions and denials and remunerations and uh, a scandal and even people getting their feelings hurt if we dare to be so specific about Jesus as he is and help us to live that uh, lordship of Christ consistently as believers in you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would open eyes and draw people to yourself if they've never received Christ for the very first time, that even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.